Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise. To contact us, call us at 208-331-4096. That number again is 208-331-4096. Now here's Joel Van Hoogen. The names given in Hebrews 11.32 as examples of faith are Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. If you look close at these men, you'll find that the one thing commendable about them is who they believed in. In fact, for some of them, it's the only thing commendable about them. And we learn as a result that who we believe in is the most important thing. If you consider the life of David, I think what's being referred to here likely is 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the story of David facing Goliath. If you remember in that story, he's the youngest one and his brothers are in the camp of the Israelites facing off against the Philistines and he's sent by his father to bring food to his brothers. And while he's in the camp of the Israelites, on the other side of the valley on another hill are the camp of the Philistines. David hears what is taking place over a series of days, this massive Philistine by the name of Goliath come and taunt the armies of Israel. Are none of you brave enough to come and fight me? If one of you can defeat me, we'll all bow down before you. Echoing over the valley and the boy David is indignant. And he goes out to fight against Goliath. And he goes out to fight against Goliath, not with weapons of warfare, but with a stick and a strap of leather from which to hurl stones. Goliath meets him armored and armed with a massive spear and a sword. And Goliath cries out to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? And David, the boy, responds, You come against me with sword and with spear and with shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all the assembly know that God saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He believed God. He believed God's word. And he fought the giant and he defeated him. We know the story. Samuel is the next one who's given to us. And let Samuel be a representation of all of the prophets that go and are followed up behind him in this passage. You can read about Samuel's early life in 1 Samuel verses 1 through 3. He's born to a woman who had been barren, Hannah. Hannah prayed for him. After he is promised to be delivered to her as a child, she devotes him to be raised in the place where Israel comes to worship God. Samuel lives in an age when Israel's spiritual leaders are utterly corrupt and an age when the people of Israel are rejecting God's leadership over them. And we're told that when Samuel began his ministry, that the word of the Lord was rare in that time. In other words, God wasn't speaking to the people. God was giving the people, in a sense, the silent treatment because they weren't obedient or responsive to what God was saying. He's a solitary figure who determined to speak God's word regardless of the reaction that he received. This is actually the image that we have often of the prophets. They are alone, they are forsaken, they are solitary, they're exposed to the powers of the age in which they live in without anything to defend themselves, and they speak truth to power. They only believe in God, they believe in His Word, and so they speak. 
They speak even when they're ignored, when they're ridiculed, when they're rejected, when they're killed, and on rare occasions when they're honored. It doesn't happen very often. What can we learn from all these individuals that we just went through now? What can we learn from this, this legacy of Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets? Well, let me give you some applications here very quickly. And the first one is this. Don't exaggerate or over-apply their example. Here's the first thing. Don't exaggerate or over-apply their example. Not all, and in some cases, very little of their lives are to be followed. You're not to follow Samson's example in life. Please don't, right? Samson was narcissistically focused on himself and his own pleasure almost from beginning to end. Barak is a fearful leader who didn't want to risk his own reputation. Gideon eventually led the people of Israel into, if you follow his life, into idolatry by allowing his deeds, which he first refused them to do, but eventually allowing his deeds to be honored and to express with honored and rewarded. And as a result, he led the people into idolatry. Jephthah was a thief. And he made a rash vow to God, God, if you'll give me victory, you'll find out that if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing when I come back from the battle that comes out the door of my house. The first thing that comes out the door of his house is his daughter. Don't follow that example either. David. What could we say about David? There's any number of things that David did that are a bad example. David is a man who used his power to steal a man's wife and to steal a man's life. David. Samuel. Samuel, who had such a tremendous ministry and was used of God to be the final judge before the kings rose up. The primary reason that Samuel ceased to perpetuate the idea of judges ruling over Israel was because Samuel put his sons over him to take the place of him reigning over the people And his sons were wicked and corrupt, and they abused the people. And so Samuel, who gave his life to minister to the people of Israel, ultimately determined that he would give more honor to his corrupt children than the people that God had called him to serve. Not necessarily a good example either. You see, the point here is, we honor these individuals not because of everything they did. We honor them for one thing and one thing only, and that is their faith in God. Here's another thing. Although we don't want to exaggerate or overapply their example, we don't want to limit their impact either. Now, knowing their sins and their weaknesses, I want you to see that God still used them. God still worked through them because of their faith. I want you to find in that idea hope for yourself. I think that's the point. God used these weak corrupt individuals and God worked for them and God did great things through their faith and God can do the same thing through you. Regardless of the weakness that time and experience has exposed in your life. Hasn't that been what's happened? If you've been paying attention to your life? As time went by, it's exposed your weakness, your inability, your incapacity, your failures, your disappointments. You'd like to change it all, but that's what time does. It shows the inconsistencies. In spite of all that, regardless of all that, the most important thing is still yours to experience and exercise. It's faith. 
And it's not positivism. It's faith in God. And when you exercise faith in God and in the right object, you have the potential to become a hero of faith, even though there are plenty of contradictions in your past life. You can be a hero of faith. Don't limit their impact because of the lives they lived. Don't limit yours either. Here's the next one. Don't miss the point. The secret of these individuals' power actually was, in part at least, in their weakness. It was the acute awareness of their own weakness that necessitated their faith in God alone if they were to move forward. Their strength came only in knowing that they were weak and they couldn't accomplish the task before them, and yet they had to believe God for it. If you go to Judges chapter 6 again, where God speaks of Gideon as this mighty man of valor, Gideon complains of the ongoing defeat that the Israelites are experiencing at the power and hand of the Midianites. Here he is hiding in a wine press, and God says to Gideon this phrase, Go in this your might and save Israel. He finds him in a wine press, recognizing that the army around them is too great for them to handle. And God says, Go in this your might and save Israel. What is this your might? Go in this thing that's making you powerful. I want to suggest to you that it's the very knowledge of his own utter weakness before the force that's before him. Gideon understood that he didn't have the power and strength to prevail. He actually says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in my tribe, and I am the least in my father's house. And God answers him and says, But I'll be with you. Paul put it this way. When I am weak, then I am strong. You go back and look at that list of accomplishments that take place in verses 33 through 34. And the one thing that ties all these accomplishments together is that the odds are stacked against the realization of any of them. You're not going to work righteousness in your own power and your own strength. God has to do that. You're not going to overcome fires God has to bring you through the fires. You're not going to subdue kingdoms on your own. God has to subdue those kingdoms. But God can. Keep that in mind. Remember that. The secret of faith is not your strength, but your weakness. It's not that this is something I can overcome if I just have a positive attitude. It's, God, if you don't deliver me. God, if you don't answer. God, if you don't provide God, if you're not with me, there's no solution. Here's the last point here. Don't ignore the risk taken and overcome. These men believed and had faith in God. And with that trust in God, they wagered their lives against odds that were far too great for them. Actually, again, this wager that they're making is not surprising either. People are always wagering their lives against Everything. In fact, they wager their lives on a daily basis against eternity. But here's the point. Now, listen to me. Not everybody's going to win that bet. It's not always a good bet. If you're going to wager your life against eternity, you better be really confident in what you're putting your confidence. You know, I'm better than most people. I'd wager eternity on my good works. You might want to evaluate that a little more closely. Solomon writes in Proverbs 14, 12, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus spoke about this wrong wager of misplaced faith 
when he said this, what does it profit a person if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? According to Christ, that's the wrong wager. There's a right wager of faith, but that's the wrong wager to make. In fact, within the context in which Christ is speaking, he tells us what is the right wager of faith. It's Mark chapter 8. Jesus says this in verse 34 of Mark 8 and on. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Real quick here. He says you're to give yourself for the gospel. Well, the gospel is simply this. Christ has come. He's opened up for us a way of a future of eternal glory and to rescue us from eternal and everlasting hell. And he says, what can be given in exchange of your soul? And the answer is this, nothing. You can't give anything in exchange for your soul. There's no righteousness you can work. There's nothing you can do to buy yourself back from your sins. But Christ has given himself to buy you back. He's purchased you and redeemed you back from your sins. And all that's left for you is this. Faith. Faith. Trusting and believing in Him alone, in God, in His salvation. And the risk you take is you lay everything down to follow Him. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, God bless you.